Um, so this actually should connect in. Um, but you may hear a, thing, a couple things from my heart that, um, yeah. If you're going to email me or call me, just give me two days. Just pray about it before you get back to me. But know that this is in love, all right? So with that, um, you see here, we're actually going to be talking about the life of the church. And I know that sounds kind of generic or what have you, but we're going to look at um, the first 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4. And so in this, if you're going to tune out, I'll tell you here where we're going so you can take your nap, but I'm sure you'll be woken up about the middle of it, depending on how I feel. Um, so, right, so the really, the, the reality is, um, Paul starts out this, um, this first verse, and it should be in you version. I think Jeff loaded this before he went to wherever he went. Um, but it talks about this. This is really where Paul is getting to in this section, that as we live this life that we're supposed to live that's worthy of the calling we received, there are some key things. We're called to live in unity, we're called to be equipped, and we're called to grow in maturity. Right? So if you're looking for your three points, now you have them. You can sip your coffee. I will wake you up. Trust me. But Paul starts out here, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And again, as we look at that, I don't know about you, but for me sometimes it's just like, it's like I, I have to fight against this urge to earn it. And we've talked about this. I actually talked about this when we were in the Philippians series. That the reality is we've been giving something and now we are to live it out. We can't earn it. We can't live into it to get it. It's a gift of God. But by having that, he tells us in several places in the Bible to live out this life, this calling you've received. Here's one of the times. We talked about it in Philippians um, chapter 1, where it says to conduct yourselves worthy of the manner of Christ. In Colossians 1.10, it says to live a life worthy of the Lord as well. And so Paul is clear as, as he writes these letters to these churches that are just starting, he is clear in saying, we have been given something that we are to live out, and it has to come with some responsibility. And so, so he says, I, I urge you, I urge you to live it out. And if we are starting in the beginning of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, there's a ton of theology that Paul is, is giving to them. And as he gets to the end of chapter 3, that's where we took the key verse for the equipping um, conference last, last year, that, that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, right? So all of this theoretical or theology of who God is, he can, he's actually able to put that into practice in us as we live out the life that, is, that has been given to us. And so that's where Paul's going. So he's making the shift in this letter, or this book as we call it, and going from the first three chapters into now the practical, and that's where we join in today. And, and Paul is saying, right, as a prisoner, just like we looked at in Philippians, he's in chains because he was committed to living out the call that God had given him specifically. And he does that as an example. He says, now if I've done this, you are to do it as well, even if it costs you as it's cost me. And as I thought about this week, I thought, well, wow, Paul in prison. And I think of the times that I was in prison. No, literally, I, in Soledad. I was there on a few occasions. Now, granted, I was there to play softball against the inmates. <laughs> I wasn't processed in and processed out. I went through a different process. And I got to go home. <laughs> but I shared my faith in that context. 
And I can't imagine what it would be like to have to be forced to be in prison because of my faith, not to get to go there and share my faith. But here's Paul. And he goes on, he says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient and bearing with one another in love. Right? If we're going to live out this call, and we live it out individually between us and God, but we also live it out in community, it's going to require us to get along. It's going to require us to live out these characteristics or these godly qualities that he is seeing here. To be humble. To be gentle. To be patient. And to bear with one another. Right again, I think back to where we just were with Philippians chapter 2 in the beginning. This is just like he said there. Right? He said, and, and Christ, in all humility, right, emptied himself out of everything and was born, taking on the very nature of a servant. That's humility. That's being gentle. That's doing so in love. And the reality is that Christianity is a God-directed, and Christ-defined, others-oriented religion. A God-directed, Christ-defined, others-oriented religion. In other words, that God leads that and Christ enables it, and we're to put that into practice with each other and within our inner circles. And that's where he's starting here. And that list of four qualities here might be tough when you think about that, but that phrase at the bottom, in love, that's the word agape. That's a God-given love. And he gives that to us. He empowers us to be able to live out the call to do these four things as we live in community. And so he says that. He says to be completely humble, to be gentle, patient, and bearing. And these weren't qualities that were found in the ancient Near East when this was taking place. And it's funny, not much has changed in 2,000 years. Because if you ask the average person on the street, hey, is this what a, a, you know, a, a mature person is like? It's, it's not. We're called to be countercultural. And I know it can be a challenge. But here he says that, be completely humble gentle, patient, bearing with one another in agape love. And make every effort, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You see, the same way that God births and gives this love to us, the Spirit births and initiates this unity as well. Both come from God. And then the challenge of the call is for us to make every effort to keep building into that to maintain that unity, to protect that unity, to strengthen that unity. But being united is a hallmark of the Christian family. And so Paul is challenging that here through the bond of peace. Now, if we were to have read Ephesians 1 through 3, we would see that, that Christ was already at work with this bond of peace. That he, by the work of the cross, he was the one that was initiating peace between God and man, and he was breaking the dividing wall, it says, between Jew and Gentile. Between those barriers that would keep us from coming together, Christ abolished by the cross. And so we might say, oh, here's an excuse. Oh, I can't live with that other person because they have this background, I have this background. Christ already made peace between us and him and between us together. And so Paul is calling attention to that. 
And this bond of peace that helps us to build and to strengthen the unity the Spirit has initiated. And we're called to live united. And he goes on to give some clarity to that. He starts to break apart. What does that unity look like? And in verse 4, it says this, There is one. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. This is a God-given thing, and he's saying, this is how we live in community in the Trinity, and this is how you will live as my body the same way, and we, and we model this for you. Right here you have the Trinity just listed, right? It's the Spirit in action. It's the Lord Jesus Christ in action and God the Father Almighty, all three together in one place working in accord for us. He says in here, this is the example we set, but it's also the call we have for you to live as one. This oneness is the same as unity. And it looks like this. One body. Right? Members one to another as the body of Christ. We belong to each other. And the Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit. We have the shared indwelling of the one same Holy Spirit and access to the Father. And we share that. One hope, which is our our assurance and guarantee of a shared inheritance that cannot be taken away. But there's only one hope that will come true and be realized. And that's That's in the Spirit through Christ. Our common allegiance to one transcendent, one holy Lord, and one faith. This attitude of trust, or this one faith is the access to God. There's only one way, but it's available to everybody. One faith. And we all have expressed that if we call ourselves children of God or he calls us children of God because we have placed our faith in him. That's that access to God. And it's marked by baptism. One baptism. An outward expression of what God in Christ is doing in our lives and we, be, and we get baptized publicly to say, yes, I am in Christ, a new creation, and I make it a public declaration. And oh, by the way, we'll be doing that on May 5th as well. If you've never been baptized, see me, see Jeff, but you have the opportunity to step into this. And then again, one God and Father, and we're restored as his family. So here Paul is, is listing these seven key things that are one, that bring unity. And he's spelling that out, that this is what brings us together in commonality, even though we have radically diverse backgrounds. And we have radically different ways that we're wired by God. And as I was thinking about this, I, I thought of the disciples, and sometimes there's things I wish there was more in the Bible. I wish there was more interaction or a little bit more of expression of humanity as they struggle through the things that they're struggling through. Like the 12 disciples. Like I think, okay, take two of them. Take Simon the Zealot, who really was a revolutionist, who wanted this overthrow to take place. He would like, he would just as soon stab somebody in the back to start the revolution. And then you have Matthew. I'm going to pick on him twice. Here you have Matthew named Levi, who was a Jew that as an ultimate traitor became the tax collector for his own people. And now you have these 12 guys following Jesus, and I would die to hear what the conversation between the zealot 
and a traitor was as they both laid that down and became one in Christ. And wow. Talk about bearing with one another. Dude, how could you do that? But you're just here to, you know, to start a revolution. Like, what are they talking about? Or I think of two others. Pick uh, Matthew again and the fishermen. Now, this is a bit of a stretch here. Here you have Matthew, and I picture him right as the, you know, the, the white-collar worker guy in the office collecting the things and doing his spreadsheets and all this. Maybe it's abacus back then, whatever. And then you have these fishermen. Blue-collar, you know, just like the Teamsters. Like the Teamsters hanging out with the office dude with the tie. Really? What are they talking about? You know, so, so that. Or one of my favorite, Thomas, the analytical. Let's give him a different name, right? He's asking key questions. He's trying to get to the heart of the matter. Like, hey, how does this work? Then you have Peter, who's the external thinker, who just blurts anything out and just like, now what do I really believe about that? But somehow they they had to come together in Christ. And I would love to know how how in the world did they just get along? And then you had Judas who, yeah, stole from the pocketbook. Yeah, not so good. He's his own conundrum unto himself. But again, living, united as one from very different backgrounds. And Paul goes on, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And this grace isn't saving grace that he's talking about. This grace isn't sustaining grace that sustains us through. This, ga- this grace is the gift for us to do ministry as his body, as his family. Right? So there's the grace that, that provides for us for salvation. There's a grace that God gives to sustain us through. And there's a grace that God gives that, that charismata, that gift to help us do what he's called us to do as Christ apportioned it, that he divvies it out, not, not to differences of levels, but to differences of uniqueness. Because we have a God who is infinite in his creativity, and he sections it out to each of us to live out this grace as we do the work he's called us to do in the way that we're wired, in the people we're connected to. And he pours out that grace. That grace is a gift that comes from him, the giver of all good things. And so Paul writes this, but to each one of us, all of us who believe have been given gift for service. And he takes a little bit of a, uh, of a break here. He, he brings in a couple things. He says, that's why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. So here, Paul is pulling in a quote from Psalm 68 and changing the, the bottom, the last piece, just a little bit. And the reality is that this is, this is he who ascended. This is Christ who was raised back to the right hand of the Father. That he took many captives, right? On the work of the cross, he demolished the strongholds and made a public spectacle of them, right? He, he beat the enemy on the cross. And he gave gifts to his people. In the psalm it says, and the people gave him gifts. But the idea is of a conquering king coming back and leading the captives behind him to show that, hey, look, we have overcome. I have overcome as the leader. And that's what he's saying here, that Christ has overcome. And, and those who were battling against him are now captive. And oh, by the way, he's going to share in the victory that he had. He gives us this grace. 
But then to clarify this, Paul still goes on this tangent, if you will. And he says, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? And he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And you're like, what is he talking about? And the reality is there's two key words, right? Ascend and descend, right? So, so we know that he who ascended, right? We, we go back to Philippians, right? In, in chapter 2. That, that after, you know, on the cross, that God raised him to the right hand. That every name, that every tongue would, would, would confess, and every knee would bow on heaven, under the earth, right? To the glory of God the Father, that he is the Lord, right? That's the same thing we looked at there. Paul says it this way in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, he says, That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head of everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And then Paul writes this. So they already had read that piece, so they knew of the triumph. They knew the exaltation of Christ. And what happened, what Paul is talking about here is that Christ came in the incarnation from heaven to earth, God in bodily form, and he descended. And he did what he was called to do, faithful work up to his Father, and then he, then he ascended back to heaven, back to the right hand of the Father. And that's what it's talking about here. And so Christ, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. And the reality is here that Christ gave people as the gifts, very specific people for specific purposes for the sake of the church. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be shepherds, and some to be teachers. And specifically at this time, there were two unique things, the apostles and the prophets. And we know from Scripture that there were specific apostles and there were specific prophets along with Christ who laid the foundation. And that foundation is set. It doesn't change. It doesn't get added to. And that has, that has ended because that foundation is set. But there's still a ministry that's apostolic. There still is a ministry that is prophetic. There is definitely the ministry that it should be evangelistic as well as pastoral and teaching. And Christ gave these things for the church. He gave these people wired in a specific way for the church. They're unique. And they look like this. In some circles, it's called the fivefold ministry of leadership. That there's this idea of apostles, ones who are sent out, that they're the missional leaders. They're the trainers, the pioneers. These are leaders that lead in this, this form and fashion. They're leaders that are prophetic, that have this continual call to foundational truth and faithfulness. Evangelists, those who proclaim the gospel and train for that. 
And then pastors and shepherds that cultivate loving community. And then teachers, those who continue to teach the body, but also help to, um, to encourage and to foster a learning environment within the body. And all five of these should still be active in the church today. But under that red line, it seems like the church is only focused on these two. Now, there aren't the 12 apostles anymore. But there's still work to be done that's apostolic or missional. And I think sometimes this is where the, the church has made a mistake or we've short-sighted ourselves because that, that top list of three, we don't give as much credence to as we should. And see, the reality is, as we come into the family of God, we need to start with this idea of, of, of our making sure our Christology is first and foremost, which then derives our missiology, how we live in mission, and then how we build our ecclesiology as the body of Christ. And sometimes as the body, we put it backwards because we make it about us. And, and sometimes, and I hear that, and I live with that as well, you know, down below that red line. And this is the conversation I'm having with God in the last several months. Sometimes we say, oh, you know, it's outside my comfort zone. Or I want the pastor for me. I want the teacher for me. And, and we rarely ever give credence to those three things above. But yet we say, oh, I hope my church will grow. But if I'm unwilling to be sent out, and if I'm unwilling to connect with my inner circle, and if I'm unwilling to be challenged to, to live evangelistically, and the day of the attractional church is gone, we are that attraction living right in Christ as we go out in our inner circles. But if we short-sight the gift of what God has given his church and we fail to live into the full breadth of what he's given, it's a struggle. And then it's a struggle as well for the body as we look at leaders and we fail to recognize three areas of leadership. And then you may have somebody we might come across people in our, in our environment who are gifted apostolically or prophetically or evangelistically. And then people say, hey, why aren't you loving on us like a shepherd? Why aren't you teaching us like a teacher? Because they're given a different, a different wiring, a different gift set for the work of the church. And yeah, they do love and they do teach, but it comes from a different place. And the church has lost sight of this. But yet, this is the totality of the leadership that God has given for his church. And I believe as cedars, and before that, the two churches that came together, I think we heard this. Which is why we had this, this charge to birth home churches. To reach our inner circle. The idea of oikos back in the beginning. 
Because this fivefold ministry or these leaders are given to equip the church for works of service. So the body may be built up. And the reality is there's three phrases there. And that first phrase is given and attached to those, those leadership positions. Their position is to equip the saints, which is what we have said. And this is our key verse. Or these two are our key verses. And as the leaders equip the saints, and yes, they should be doing likewise, not to be hypocritical and tell you what to do that they're not doing themselves. That sounds like the, the, the Pharisees. But two things come out. We do the works of service because we've been equipped by a whole host of leaders using their gift set that is a gift to the church. And we build one another up. That we equip. And then as the body, we work together evangelistically and building community, focusing on maturity, loving one another, because we've been poured into as well. We've been poured into leaders who are stewarding the gifts that they've been given and being called to do likewise until we all reach unity in the faith, right? That's the outcome is to reach unity, growing in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, that there's the unity that God has called us to. There's the grace he's given us to live it out and people given to equip the church in order that we would mature and grow in maturity to the whole measure of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind and teaching and the cunningness and craftiness of people in their de deceitful scheming. Right? We're not called to be infants in the faith. We are when we're first born in the faith, but we're called to mature and to grow. And that comes through knowledge, that comes through experience, that comes through taking steps of faith. And yes, we may take a step, and it might not work out the way that we had planned, but we're actively putting our faith into action. We're no longer infants tossed back and forth. And as I think about that, I think about that and this idea of a boat. If you've ever seen a boat trying to make it over big breakers and it's just getting washed around, it's certainly if it doesn't have a rudder, there's no hope that that boat is going to actually make it over the breakers and out to where it can go. But with that rudder, right, as we mature, that's that rudder is growing. And even though that rudder is small in comparison to the ship, it does a great thing. So we're no longer tossed about. Why? Because we're growing in the knowledge, both experience and book knowledge, of who God is. So that when people come at us with good-sounding arguments, but we know the truth, and we're able to refute that and actually share the gospel with them. And instead, speaking the truth or practicing the truth in love, we will grow to become in respect in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Right? We, we live out this love. We speak this love. We embody the very love of God as we, as we relate to each other and we relate to our inner circle. And that's what he's saying here, that instead we love one another. We practice, we live out love one to another. Which really, I think, is a hallmark of maturity. 
Doesn't mean we don't have the difficult conversations. Doesn't mean that we don't come in humility and ask for forgiveness for the things that we've done. Those are marks of maturity. Those very things that we talked about in the beginning are actually marks of maturity if we put them into practice. And that is practicing truth or speaking the truth in love. And he finishes with this. That it comes from him, or from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. There's a work that God has called us to do, and he's already at work, and he's challenging us to catch up to the work that he is already engaged in, in our inner circles, in the lives of one another here, as we pray and raise up more home churches. That's the desire that God has for Cedar's church, and he's calling us to catch up to him. And we have gotten, we, we, have, we have made tremendous strides We've seen home churches built. Now we need to be praying for the next wave to come. We have people reaching their inner circles. And we have more people that are starting to press into that as well. That's awesome. But as each work, as each part does its work, and I know sometimes it's a challenge, but it requires all of us to work together for the common cause that God has called Cedars to, to reach around in this area, for him, for his kingdom. And one of those realities is, and you've heard it the last three weeks up here, we've had Brian and we've had Evan. Um, you can put the timer on for the next five minutes. Um, share about youth ministry. And one of the things right now is Evan and Lindsay and baby Rose are in San Antonio, Texas, looking for a place to live. Because they have been wrestling through, rightly through, about where God is calling them to go. And Evan is our, has been our junior high director, and he took that over from Sammy. But he and his wife have been discerning for some time a call to go back to Texas, which is where he's from. And so they're going. April 14th is his last day here. Because he's been wrestling through the same thing. God, where would you have me to reach into my inner circle? Where are you calling me to go to? And it's a difficult decision to leave the one side of the family, and he'll be reunited with his brother in San Antonio. And we've been, we've been talking about the need in, in youth ministry for three weeks. It's the body having a chance to build each other up. And I'll tell you, we do not have anybody in place yet for April 15th, the day after they hit the road. And we continue to, to, to challenge you to be praying about that or maybe be asking if it's you. But there's a day coming where there may be a shoulder tap on some of you. And not just in middle school, but also high school and youth ministry. We are woefully under-teamed woefully underteamed. This is a key area. The, that is an age group and a generation where most people will make a decision for Christ and we need some people to join the team. We need, we need a leader for, for junior high and God will show us who that is, but we also need a team for that and high school and young adults. 
this, this age, or this, those segments of ages within our body, as you heard, as you heard from the, the two of them the last three weeks, they want to be loved on. And we have so many gifted people in Cedars that have been gifted with grace by God. And, and the body needs you. And I know we live in a busy, busy, busy culture. But in, in all raw honesty, there's a day I have to give an account. And I've practiced this in my mind many times. Tim, why weren't you as faithful? God, I was busy. You weren't busy to watch, too busy to watch television for three hours a day. Was that running more of an obsession? Busy? Yeah, that's my excuse. God, I thank you for this day. I trust this is what you wanted me to share. Holy Spirit, you make use of that. Your word will not return void. God, you know the needs that we have as cedars. I thank you for the grace, (laughs) the saving and sustaining grace you have shown us, but also the grace you are giving us to steward. For the ministry you've called cedars to, to equip the saints for works of service, to reach our inner circle, to birth house churches because the attraction days are over, but you are so attractional. Your love. And when the body loves right one to another and reaches out in love, it's amazing. And it sparkles and stands out in our culture. And I pray that we show it more and more and more. And God, for the youth of our culture, facing so many things that that will challenge them. God, I thank you for Brian. I thank you for Evan. I thank you for those who have been a part of Cedars in those areas before. And now there's that next person or that team and those lay leaders that you know we need. But you've given grace. You have apportioned it. You have sectioned it out and you've handed it out. And some of those people are in this room. But to all of us, you have given grace for where you've placed us, the connections that we have, the connections we're building that we call inner circle Help us not to just have that as a buzzword. That you would raise up the next set of home church leaders. And I pray a blessing over the three that have birthed, over Tim and Esteban, over Andy, over Barry. And God, as we launch this next set of Cedars groups, that the people would be equipped, that they know that they, were, that they are loved, 
And I thank you for how far we've come in these things. And we are blessed because you are good and you love. And Lord, now as we turn our attention to worshiping you through singing or through uh, the, the worship of offerings or prayer, using the prayer wall or taking communion, we celebrate the victory that was yours on the cross, that you gave your body and you shed your blood and you, you're the champion. And in you, we are more than conquerors. And I thank you for the grace. I thank you for your patience, your humility, your forbearance. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.